I know that uh, some of them have got important exams this week, maybe even tomorrow. So as you get down, I'm going to pray. Lord, I pray for any of these uh, young people serving us tonight or sitting here tonight who have exams tomorrow this week. Lord, give them strength and wisdom and help to really be able to do well in these exams, to acquit themselves well, to answer questions accurately. I pray, Lord, that being here tonight or will not in any way compromise their ability. Lord, I know the work would have been done a lot earlier than tonight, but I pray that even the fact that they've uh, given this evening for you would, would just uh, almost give them a head start for the exams. It won't, be a, it won't be in any sense a handicap, but it will be a help. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for tonight you just help us. Holy Spirit, may your presence be really very real amongst us as we look at these important subjects. Open our ears, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, may we go away challenged, may we go away, yeah, provoked, but also encouraged, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. One quick thing, I forgot this morning to mention the marriage course, um, which we have in the church, running almost continually, actually, because there's always a, a marriage course running with one, uh, the possibility, you know, of uh, one way or another. We do often do them in the homes, uh, as they're not all centralised now. But I, I just want to remind you, there's postcards about them at the back. It's something that is, is always worth doing. Marion and I have done the marriage course here. It's good. It's like an MOT. It's very helpful. It's not us just about problems and things, but I meant to mention that this morning. Good. We're going to look this evening at going the distance, which is the first of a series of three on finishing the race, which maybe is a bit of an overlap of titles there. I, I wondered about using the title, The Race Marked Out for Us Tonight, which would have been perhaps slightly more accurate. I guess going the distance is fine. Because what I'm looking at tonight is the whole concept of the race. Let me put that on, then it will come up. Oh, it has come up. Right, the whole concept of the race. What I want to do as I get into um, the next two uh, evenings in June, uh, June and July, we'll be looking at ways we handle obstacles and challenges to progressing in our Christian life. Uh, and we'll be looking at some very practical things, digging into the Bible on them. This evening isn't impractical at all, it's very practical, but it is more theological and uh, in that sense might be a bit more demanding from a teaching point of view. I trust it won't be in any way boring, but I do want you to be alert because we are looking at some really, not so much complicated, but tricky issues. Because there are things that Christians have tussled about and questioned down the years and debated very hotly indeed sometimes, Things like how, you know, are we, do we persevere or does God preserve us? It's both, but what does that mean? You know, how can we have assurance of our salvation if we take seriously the warnings in Scripture about apostasy? By the way, apostasy, I don't want to be rude here, but is turning from your religion, turning from your faith, saying, that's it, I'm not following that anymore. But, uh, you know, if people do, you know, were they ever Christians? Uh, did they fall away? Uh, and what were they to start with? Can you lose your salvation? Things like that, which Christians have debated through the years. I hope we'll end up with clearer grasp of the Bible on these issues. To be very honest with you, tonight is a new talk for me. Quite often when I do talks these days, they're reworking of things that I might have done in the past. Not always, by any means, I hasten to say, but quite often they are. But this isn't. 
I mean, this is the first time I've done this talk, and I have actually this, this particular night, but the other two will have a bit more basis and stuff I've done before. But, but actually, I really found this provoking, encouraging, quite exciting and quite challenging in my own spirit, preparing. That's the absolute truth. And I, and, uh, I found some of the book, one of the books I read really helpful. Um, which is called The Race Set Before Us, and I'll probably, it isn't here tonight, but we'll have a little bookstall on the other two evenings, and I'll mention it again then. But it is quite a chunky book, and trust me, I think you're getting a digest of my main points tonight. But I found it quite um, challenging myself, and very helpful indeed. And I feel I maybe have got a greater understanding myself of how, the promises and the warnings, and how do they go together, than, than I might have done in the past. I really do, after being a Christian 40 years. I feel, or more than 40 years, uh, nearly 50. So I, I really feel that, that God is um, always teaching us things and always helping us. Now, I'm not suggesting that like, there's something uh, like utterly new, because that would be inappropriate, because a lot of this stuff isn't utterly new. Uh, in fact, I'll have a quote from Mr. Spurgeon later on, reinforcing the main uh, thesis of the evening. But actually... I, I do feel God gave me personally some new perspectives on it. So let's get started by looking at, uh, most of the scriptures will go up. This one, uh, which isn't going to go up, is it? Oh, I don't know if this is um, me or you, or, but I'm looking for Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3. There it is. Thank you. Now, this is a good one to start with. That's it's where it, it starts. I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I could honestly spend most of the evening on that. It's an amazing few verses. But it catches so many of the things that I want to talk about over this tonight. Just the whole sense that, Actually, we are persevering in a race marked out for us. That is one way of describing the Christian life. That we can be entangled with all sorts of things. Things that hinder and sins. That the key issue is keeping your eye on Jesus, who is the author of our faith, interestingly enough, and the perfecter of it. So actually, it's not all down to us, it's all down to him. But actually, we can grow weary and lose heart And we need to hear from God how we handle that and keep on and come through it. Now, straight away, we'll just leave that up for a little moment, but straight away, I want to just highlight how we get truths, and they are truths, that we tussle with. How do these fit together? For example, that you gain the prize of eternal life only by running the race to the end. That is a truth you can draw out from the New Testament. And we'll probably see some scriptures that give us that later on. Another one, that faith that perseveres is faith that receives God's final commendation, not condemnation, commendation on the day of judgment. Faith that perseveres. Another truth, the reward we receive in Jesus Christ is in no way grounded in our achievement. It's not down to our work or even our tenacity or willpower that we are rewarded with eternal life. 
Fourthly, something we've just read. Jesus himself is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's all about him. His redemptive act, his sacrificial death, his resurrection is the sole objective basis of our salvation. Now, how do we bring these biblical truths together in harmony? Well, I'd like to start by referring to Hebrews 11. We won't be doing a study on it, but, you know, it's the chapter just before this. Hebrews 11, the great chapter on faith. And in referring to Hebrews 11, which you can look at in more detail later yourself, have it open if you wish to, I think we get a real understanding of the real nature of faith, real faith, saving faith. The word that's translated faith in Hebrews 11 actually includes two concepts. Faith and faithfulness. Faith, as God created it, and God did create it and design it along with us, faith, real faith, springs into obedient behaviour. Real faith inevitably births something in the individual who has faith. And one of the key things it births is a faithfulness. And in all the examples in Hebrews, there are actions particularly actions of faithfulness to God's promises that the various characters and heroes display. Just in Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So real faith expresses itself in a diligent pursuit of God, in a seeking of God, in a belief in him which has an action in pursuing him. Here's another one from Hebrews 10. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The faith that pleases God, the faith that is effective, is faith that perseveres. So we do not find God ever commending a person for a singular act of faith that fails to endure. A one-off act of faith that fails to endure is not what we're really talking about. We're talking about people who in this model pursue faith and are in a race of faith and they are faithful in that race. Basically, real faith will ultimately persevere. And this is interesting. As I say, you've got to think it through. Faithfulness is both the obedience that derives from faith and the proof that our faith is genuine. And In other words, if you have real faith, it produces faithfulness, which proves it's real faith, if you like. It's a little bit circular. But this faithfulness is not a work of righteousness. It's a natural product of genuine, God-pleasing faith. Now, we know from lots of other things, and it's important, that our pattern of behaviour and the words we speak show what we truly believe. That's true. That's been learning that in Freedom in Christ. But God made us in such a way that that's true, that what we really believe affects our behaviour and our words. There is an unbreakable connection between faith and action. All our behaviour is actually conceived in the womb of our belief. So our behaviour is conceived in the womb of our beliefs. So real living faith will always show itself. Real faith doesn't exist without altering behaviour. I think that is something that's clearly taught in Scripture again and again. 
Hebrews 11 itself gives a glimpse into the tensions that these truths give us and actually the encouragement of it as well. Hebrews 11 is a great little sort of mini analysis of faith. Actually, you could argue that Hebrews 11 is like a little foretaste of Judgment Day. Hebrews 11. I'll explain what I mean. All the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 showed their faith by action. Particularly, faith-based actions of trusting God and keeping trusting God. Now, we're going to get back in a moment to some of the details of their life, because that's not all they did, and it wasn't all perfect. They were not perfect people. But essentially, they showed they really believed in God, because they kept on being faithful to him and trusting him. Now, actually, Hebrews 11 tells us that God commends people who behave like that whose behaviour is governed by their faith in him. And actually, because our actions and our deeds reflect what we truly believe, in the judgement, even of believers, our actions are relevant, because they will be evidence of what we truly believe. But in Hebrews 11, as a chapter, God clearly passes over some quite obvious sins in the lives of these so-called heroes. There are some notorious failings. Just think of David. Think of Noah's drunkenness. Think of Abraham's lying. But they're not even mentioned in Hebrews 11. So God commends people who believe in him and trust him and keep on hanging on to him. And that is their their basis for their commendation. What's commending or the word commend in Hebrews 11 is, I think, not unlike the word justify that Paul uses. What God commends is people who trust him and his promises and press through with that. But their track record is not perfect. And as we'll see by the end of the evening, even their faithfulness at times flickers. Abraham. But actually, they press on through those, and in the end, they tend to grow stronger in faith the further they go on. And their trust is totally in God and his promises. So actually, Hebrews 11 genuinely does give us a foretaste of Judgment Day. A commendation of people who put real, living, persistent, persevering faith in God and his promises, manifested that by the way they lived, but actually they weren't morally perfect at all. They were justified, they were commended because of their faith in God, not because they were perfect people who did everything right and got everything right. Okay, just hold that for a moment, because we'll unpack some of this as we go to the evening. The New Testament uses many athletic metaphors. Run, strive, press on, compete, lay hold of. They're all through the New Testament, really. And they don't denote works as against faith. They are actually part of describing real faith. Real faith is aptly described as running, pressing on, laying hold of, competing. That is one of the ways the New Testament would describe it. Let's look at one of Paul's references to something similar. Philippians 3, 12 to 15. Not that I have already obtained all this, writes Paul, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that 
for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. The reality is you cannot win Christ in that final place without faithfully running the race and finishing the course. And this is where we need to talk about the the race analogy for a moment. Try and understand it. If we think of the Christian life as like a marathon race, a 26-mile race, which we're still running in until we die or until Jesus comes back, the way you run a marathon when you're running it is you would be unwise to keep dwelling on the starting point. Did I start well? How did I start? You would be unwise to keep thinking about, well, I've done 10 miles. I wonder how I ran in those first 10 miles. Was I quite good? You keep going 10, 15, 18, 20 miles, 26 miles. You run looking forward to the goal of completing the race. And you know you've got to keep running to attain the goal. You don't win a marathon race if you stop at 18 miles. It's no good completely stopping, quitting at 18 miles and asking the race official if you can still have a prize. The reply will be, you can't receive a prize without continuing in the race. And actually, if we don't think of it as particularly a competitive race between individuals, but a race to finish, that is amazingly true, even of something like the London Marathon. I remember watching, just after on the news, Sophie Rayworth, the uh, BBC uh, newsreader, she was running in the marathon, and she probably got very dehydrated or something, but at some point she collapsed about 18, 19 miles, and, and was out cold for about an hour, but when she came round, they gave her water, she decided she wanted to finish it. Because when you finish it, you get one of these medals saying you finished it. And so she got back on the race and finished it and got a medal. And people were commending her, you know, her uh, her persistence, if you like. But actually, it's quite an interesting example of what I'm trying to talk about. You can't say to this official, who you say you're talking to this official, who you've dropped out at 18 miles and said, I'd really like, I'd like to be rewarded as though I completed the race, please. You can't say to him when he starts saying, no, you can't. You can't say to him, well, didn't you see me in the first 10 miles? I ran really fast. I was really good in those first 10 miles. He's seeing you now and you're not even running. And that's what's relevant. The pace of the first 10 miles is not relevant, really. You simply haven't finished the race. You haven't attained the goal. If you're not running, you're not in the race. Now, assurance is maintained by continuing to run in the race. And the continuity between the starting block and the finish line is attained in Christian terms by an ongoing faith in God who rewards those who seek him. So you keep believing in him. You keep trusting in Jesus. You keep holding on to Jesus. That is the race. It's fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's keep on and on working and following him. It's not primarily about human moral performance. It's not about, well, like, are you a very good person? Are you doing those good works? Those may be effects of faith, but when we're talking about this big stuff and the race, we're not really, like Hebrews 11, talking about that. We're talking about going on trusting in Jesus, keeping him in front of you and following him. That is the race. 
and it's to be continuous. Any serious runner in a marathon does that, keeps looking forward, not backwards, keeps looking at the goal, not where they started. And keeping your eye on the goal is what actually keeps you going and keeps your performance good enough to complete. In this race that we're all in, the prize is Jesus himself. He is the goal. He is all we're after. And in him, all everything comes, all the promises of God. His kingdom is what we're after. And he must be the one we keep running after. We keep, we've got, been got hold of by him, but we keep getting hold of him. We keep pursuing him until one day we are right in his presence and see him face to face. I think it's worth just emphasising again, it's slightly something I've said already, but I need to repeat several things tonight. It's worth emphasising, persevering is not even necessarily the same as continuous running, like Sophie Rayworth in the marathon. It's, if she gets back up and runs on, she'll get, the, she'll get a medal. The analogy also breaks down on this idea of a race being competitive, where only one person would get the prize for, for for, for winning, and everybody else, you know, doesn't, because I don't think that's quite push. I think that's pushing the analogy too far. Because actually, we all get the prize if we get to the end of the race. This is about completion and gaining Christ. You may struggle, you may stumble, you may even fall. You pick yourself up, you persevere. It's your perseverance, it's your endurance, it's your faithfulness that is what gets you to the end. And very importantly, it is that that is saving faith. And I use the word carefully. Saving faith is faith that is alive, and so it gets up again and runs after it's stumbled and fallen. That is saving faith. Now, the New Testament uses the word saved much more dynamically than traditionally evangelical circles do. We can ask a question quite frequently, when were you saved? I've asked that myself many times. In other words, we're thinking of a point of time, as though that was it, and it was all over and done with, you were either the light was switched on or off at that point. Now, I appreciate, if we're studying another subject, we probably, if we're coming from a God angle, I would justify very clearly that there's a moment when you're born again, the Spirit of God enters you, that is the beginning of your Christian life. But actually, the reality is, saved in the New Testament, the word salvation and saved, is much more dynamic. It's used in a past, a present, and a future sense in the New Testament. I was saved at such and such a time. I am being saved day by day by the work of Jesus in my life and by my own grasping of him. I will be saved when I finally see him face to face and have achieved my redemption and are with him. The New Testament doesn't conceive of salvation as a point, but as a continuum. Beginning, process and final consummation. And in the light of that, we get Jesus saying things that are quite challenging. You will find several times Jesus says this. This is a quote. I think it's from Matthew 10:22. I think you'll find it in Matthew 24:13. Several other places. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, let's be precise about this. Jesus' words are saying nothing about losing your salvation. Hear me. Jesus' words are saying nothing about losing your salvation. They function as a straightforward, conditional promise. They assure you that you will be saved if you persevere. Now, if you were to ask me, does that mean if I do not persevere to the end, that will prove that I was never truly saved in the beginning? 
I would say to you clearly the theological answer to that is yes. I'll just say that again. Does that mean if I do not persevere to the end, it will prove that I was never truly saved in the beginning? I'd say theologically, the answer is yes. However, I would say that is not how you're supposed to use Jesus' words. It's a misuse of not only that, but probably most of the times the Bible talks like that. Jesus is not giving a test of perseverance by which we can know whether we're saved or not. He's actually future orientated. He's actually looking forward in a race terms. It is a race thing. He's, he's keeping you encouraged and keeping your eye forward. The context is extreme persecution. The context is when trouble comes to his disciples. His words are an encouragement. They're a promise. They're an exhortation. When difficulties, death even, come to you, keep going There is an assured promise of salvation for everyone who perseveres. Keep going. Keep persevering. You will be saved. It's an encouragement. Keep going. If you stand to the end, you'll be saved. That's the context of it. It's like, as I say, conditional promise. It's not really trying to answer a theological conundrum. Theologically, I believe this and I think you can support it from Scripture, that the Bible does teach that all who are justified will persevere and be glorified. Here's one verse that we can use for that. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also thus justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I think the Bible does also teach that those who fail to persevere by remaining in the church of Jesus Christ prove by their departure that they were never truly Christians. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed none of them belonged to us. The Bible teaches these things. However, and this is very important, The Bible's warnings to Christians are not merely academic. They are not for academic debate. They are real, essential elements to our ongoing living faith. And actually, as I will show as we go through the evening, they are an important part of the reality of our persevering faith. Biblical warnings and admonitions are designed by God to motivate us to persevere in faith. They are actually a means of grace to help us complete the course. They are not idle warnings. They are not pointless. Now this is an important thing and we're going to unpick this as carefully as we can. We need to see it and understand it. There seems to be a tension between biblical texts that warn us of the dangers of abandoning the faith, apostasy, and admonish us that we must keep running in the race if we want to receive a prize. Seems to be a tension between that and other texts that promise us great confidence and great assurance of salvation. And as you mostly will know, theologians, denominations, movements, individuals have argued over these for years and often fall on one side or the other and emphasise one half more than the other half. The classic split is, of course, the Arminian versus the Calvinist. The interesting thing, and this is interesting, is that in the Bible, these sorts of things often are part of the same passage, both a promise and a warning. There's often a tension within the Bible. They're not in like, oh, well, I'm reading James over here, now I read Paul, which you'll sometimes hear people say. Actually, it's not like that. You will be looking at one passage, and it seems to have both a warning, which is pretty scary, 
and a promise which is greatly reassuring. Here's one example. Look at Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, written to Christians. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. A few verses further on, same uh, chapter, He's, in, he's giving us this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, that's us, he confirmed it with an oath, God did this so that in two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in your theological arguments through the centuries, one group will often get hold of the ones, Hebrews 6, 4 and 6, and say, there you go, you can lose your salvation. One lot will get hold of these verses and say, that's ridiculous, of course you can't. Now, they're both there in Scripture. What do we do with this? Actually, in your NIV, you will find titles warning against falling away and certainty of God's promise in this one chapter. Warnings against falling away and certainties of God's promise. The Bible assures us that we who are heirs of the promise will surely receive what God has promised. Amen. The Bible sternly admonishes us lest we fall short of the grace of God. Amen. Is this a contradiction? Is there a resolution to this tension? Should believers take the warning seriously? How do we do that and still remain assured of salvation? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Is this about eternal life? Or are these things about rewards, as some people try and argue? And I think often that gets a little bit frayed, that argument, in some of the scriptures. They seem more weighty than just rewards. We need to step back and look freshly at what was the purpose for which these passages were originally written. What's the purpose for which these passages were originally written? This is the way we always need to approach scripture. Were they written to cast doubts into sincere Christians' minds? No. Were they written to fuel a theological debate about lost or saved? No. Were they written to make rather categorical judgmental statements about people who had fallen away from the church? Well, no, not really, though they might have been slightly nearer to one of the purposes, but not really at all. I wouldn't say so. The warnings we have in Scripture aren't, listen to this, because they're not, they're not meant to be particularly introspective. Where you go away thinking, am I saved? (gasps) Feel my pulse. What did I say? Did I really mean it when I went forward at that meeting? That's not what they're really meant to produce. They're actually not particularly meant to be retrospective. Was I saved? How was I like five years ago? Where was I at? That's not really what they're supposed to be provoking. They are much more prospective, dynamically forward-looking. Don't give up. Keep going. You'll win the prize if you keep your eyes on Jesus and don't give up. 
That is the dynamic of them. They're meant as an incentive to persevere. They're not meant as a retrospective test of whether you're a pseudo-disciple or not. That's not their purpose. It's not a verdict on a past decision, nor is it actually a future judgment brought in here. That's not how you're supposed to see it. It's a now exhortation, a now encouragement to keep running in the race now. The fact is, God who chose us for his own, secures us and preserves us partly through the warnings and the promises of Scripture. They are means of God's grace, means by which he keeps us going. Listen carefully, I'll try and explain this, because it's quite important. Conditional warnings in themselves do not function to indicate anything about possible failure or fulfilment. They do not indicate anything about whether you're going to fail or fulfill. Not a conditional warning. What they're meant to do is challenge your mind, challenge your imagination, to conceive and understand the inevitable consequences that will come if you pursue a particular course, in this case apostasy from Jesus Christ. Actually, conditional warnings are useful and actually they're a very common way of keeping us safe. I'm going to help you, and it helps me, to come back from the Bible and think of something very routine. Think of road signs. Come on, we can relax a bit now for a moment. You can understand. Here you are, you've got a road sign. There's a road sign that says, on a mountain curved mountain road, dangerous curves. There's a road sign that says, weak bridge, maximum load two tonnes over a river. There's a road sign that says, beware canal edge. And I've seen one where not only does it say, beware canal edge, it has a little cartoon silhouette of a car going over the edge towards some water. You've seen that one? I've seen it. A car like that, the water like that. Think of you're out walking and you see a, a sign, you're on the you know, a, a cliff walk, beware dangerous cliff edge. I've also seen this. Beware dangerous cliff edge and a little cartoon silhouette of a person falling over a cliff with a couple of loose rocks. Little, you know, like little stick man or something. Beware dangerous cliff edge, it says, with a picture of someone falling, presumably to their death. Now, if we drive and walk safely in the light of those warnings, the warnings actually help keep us safe. The warnings help persevere us, preserve us. The purpose of those warnings is not to suggest that half the drivers who go along this road will crash, that maybe 40% of the cars will end up in a canal. That is not the purpose of the warning. The purpose of the warning on the cliff edge is not that, well, one in every three people fall over this cliff. That's not the purpose of the warning. The purpose is that no one should fall over the cliff and not one car should ever go into the canal. The purpose is also not to make me doubt my capability of being able to drive. Not to make me doubt, can I walk straight on this cliff? I realise some fragile souls may be frightened by these signs, but their purpose is not to freeze you so that you can't drive down that road and you can't walk on that cliff walk or that uh, coast walk. That's not their purpose. The warning signs project cautions concerning various hazards 
And these projected cautions appeal to the ca- your mental capability to imagine the consequences of behaving in a way that they're warning you not to. If you drive a five-ton lorry over this weak bridge, there could be very serious consequences. Think about it. That's actually what the warning is trying to do. The tr- listen to this. The truthfulness of the warning does not depend on whether or not the thing supposed comes to pass. Because no lorry has ever gone over that bridge and fallen in the river, you don't say, what a stupid warning. It's not, no reality to it at all. That hasn't true. It is a true warning. If anyone's foolish enough to drive a five-ton truck over that two-ton bridge, it could well mean they fall in the river. In fact, it probably will if those are the sort of weights they're taking over it. Suppositional warnings and exhortations don't function on the basis that it's got to come to pass for them to be valid. They function by supposing a particular course of action that has invariably disastrous consequences, such as driving a five-ton truck over a weak bridge that has a maximum load capability of two tons. Or, for example, walking dreamily in a straight line towards the sea, staring at a horizon because you think you can see a little dot on it where there's a deep, steep, deadly cliff. If you do that, it has a serious consequence. The supposition warns us to avoid a course and its consequences and it admonishes us to take a course of action that is safe and avoids those consequences. Here's this. Biblical warnings operate exactly the same way. Biblical warnings, and this is important and some people theologically struggle with this, but I believe it's true. They warn of conceivable consequences but not probable consequences. If they're not conceivable, it's not worth warning. They're conceivable consequences. God gives the warnings with the purpose of keeping us safe. And in actual fact, the warnings are one of the ways God keeps us safe. They are a means of grace. They are a means of helping real Christians with real faith to persevere. That is one of their purposes. Now, I'm going to read you a quote from Mr. Spurgeon. Preaching on Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, which I read to you earlier. The difficult passage challenging us. This is Spurgeon saying more or less what I've just said, but probably a bit better. So listen carefully. It's a bit long, but it's worth listening to. He's now referring to Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 6. If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian... It is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces? In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No, he tells us the consequences and he is sure we will not do it. So God says this, God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. 
What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold me safe. I shall be safe. Hold thou me. I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from this great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. Now, that's saying the same thing. That's saying these are real warnings of conceivable consequences. The warnings of Scripture are regarding things from the human side, and they are seriously men. But the function is to keep us going on in God. The function is to extend the initial call of the gospel into our lives and to keep calling us to be faithful to Jesus. To keep calling us, don't let go of him. Hang on, keep your faith on him, keep your focus on him. They serve like road signs pointing us on the safe way of salvation, warning us of areas of danger and destruction. The pathway they point out is faithfulness to Jesus, is persevering in faith. They warn us simply, if we do what they tell us to do, we will be safe. If we ignore them, we will suffer the consequences. Now, the warnings are linked to wonderful promises. And actually, the promises and the warnings actually work together. We're meant to heed the warnings and strengthen ourselves with the divine promises, knowing that God is faithful. And so often you see the things closely together. Here's one example. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. You see warnings and promises wrapped almost together. These things happen to them, he's referring to the old covenant people of God, as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. He warns us, be careful if you're cocky and complacent, you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. But he wraps that right up with a great promise. God's faithful. Keep your trust in him. He will always provide a way of escape. I think we sometimes spoil this verse by getting it too focused in on individual sins and temptations. It can be applied, but it's not actually quite like that. It's a bigger subject now. He's talking about the Old Testament saints who, the Old Testament people of Israel rather, not the saints, who, 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 who actually committed apostasy and worshipped idols and turned their backs on God. And he's challenging the Corinthians not to do the same. And he's saying, God is faithful. He will keep you if you keep your eye on him. If I can use other scriptures like Hebrews and wrap them together. God has promised he will provide strength in the midst of your difficulties. God has promised he will always provide a way of escape. God has promised his grace is sufficient. God has promised his strength is made perfect in weakness. God's promised when you're weak, then you can be strong in me. But you've got to be strong in him. So it's not about condemning you for weakness and failings. It's about when you're weakening, when you feel like giving up the race, when you're growing weary, when you stumble, get your eye back on him. Press on to the end and you'll win the prize. I think the way the warnings and the promises work together, in my opinion, this is a great illustration. That's why I'm going to use it. It's from the Bible and it's from Acts 27. So if you've got a Bible, if you can see, um, because it's a little dark out there, isn't it? I'd like you to turn to Acts 27 because it's all about the shipwreck 
And I think it illustrates very well how the promises and the warnings work together in this whole business of being saved and salvation. This is a concrete example and it is the issue of the shipwreck. It's like a, 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 it's like a picture, an image, but it's a biblical one and it's actually, I think, quite accurate for understanding this. And this is the story of the shipwreck when Paul and others like Luke and probably others who were writing and recording it were on this boat and Paul was a prisoner. There was a terrific storm, a deadly storm. So we're only going to be able to read some of the verses. Let's start off with Acts 27 verse 21. They've been battered by this storm for days and days. It tells us that. uh, Verse 20. 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God. It will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Amazing promises. God's sovereign introduction of a promise for the salvation of everybody in the ship. Let's look at verse 29. As things go on and it gets worse and worse, the ship seems to be foundering near rocks. Verse 29. Fearing that we will be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes They held the lifeboat and they let it fall away. Let's go on to verse 34. Now I urge you, says Paul, this is because they've been 14 days battered. And he is seeing they're approaching an island. I urge you, said Paul, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Very bold promise. Then look at verses 39 to 44. See what happened. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. At the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail and to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, run aground. The bow stuck fast and wouldn't move. And the stern was broken by piece, to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there by planks or on pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached the land in safety. So the first thing I read to you was a promise. Verses 29 to 32 were a very straight warning. Unless you stay in the ship... You cannot be saved. Paul is very direct. Now, was that warning serious? Yes, it was. Did the warning deny the earlier promise? No, it didn't. Was the warning heeded? Yes, it was. Was the promise fulfilled? Yes, it was. This, I believe, is a God illustration, and it's a good one too, I think, good illustration as well, of salvation, our salvation. God accomplished his promised purposes by use of means. 
listen carefully, God promises, God's promises in this story included both the end, all liars will be saved, and the means. You will lose the ship, it will run aground on an island. That was all part of the promises. This was that you'll all be saved, but it'll run aground on an island, and that's, then you'll, you'll get off. That's in verses 24, 26. So the promises were both the end and the means. Salvation could not be achieved apart from the means to that end. That is true of our salvation. The means is in Jesus Christ and holding on to him and living with him and running with him. And, and, and in Christ is the means, like in the boat. In verse 31, Paul framed his warning in keeping with the promise. The warning reminded them of the promise which included staying in the ship until it ran aground on an island. Recalling God's promise, the centurion and the soldiers imagined the consequences of the sailors failing to stay on board. It would be bad for the sailors, and actually it would be bad for them, because they were going to need the sailors' skills in order to run the ship right up onto an island and aground. They recognised the consequences would be disastrous If these sailors left the ship, they took the warning seriously, they acted on the warning, and they kept everybody on ship. They acted in harmony with the promise because of the warning, which was in the light of the promise, and therefore they stayed safe. Paul never speaks of the possibility of the promise failing. He calls hearers to consider the full promise, the ends and the means, And although he warned, he never cast doubt that God would keep his promises. Rather, rather his purpose was to strike fear in them, not to neglect the necessary means of salvation contained in the promise. Don't neglect the promise. The only way to be safe is to take serious heed to the promise and stay faithful to the promise. You may not be feeling comfortable, you may not be enjoying it, you may not be behaving very well, but you stay in the ship. That's the only way that the promise works. To feel the force of the warning, you didn't have to doubt the promise of God. God's promise and warnings actually work together in harmony to achieve the purpose God had and had promised. I believe that this is a good illustration. When God's purposes involve human beings, he accomplishes his ends, which are assured, by means that are suitable for human beings. He appeals to our imagination. He challenges our motives. He even provokes our fear, lest we fail to fulfil the promise, which is that we persevere right through to the end and enjoy Jesus. Real faith hangs on, and God, in a sense, tests it and helps it by the very challenges we're talking about and provokes us to keep looking to his promises. So we have to finish the race to receive the prize. We can't deceive ourselves that faithlessness is trivial, it doesn't matter. That disobedience is also trivial, it doesn't matter. We have to stay in Christ. It's like the ship. Salvation is found only in him. You must understand that. You must believe that. And therefore act accordingly. Now, we will feel intimidated. We consider our resources. We think, I think, think, well, maybe I won't finish the race then. Well, at that point, you take courage from the promises of God. That's when you look to the promises of God. He has promised 
all those called and chosen will obtain the prize. He has said it's a free gift in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the author and finisher of your faith. I will provide strength for you to finish the race. I began a good work in you and I will complete it in you. You look to the promise. You say, God help me. Like Spurgeon said, you're provoked. You say, God keep me then. I'm under pressure, Lord. I'm quaking. Keep me, Lord. Real Christians do pray like that sometimes, you know. They're not cocky and complacent. So I say, oh God, I need your strength. We need to understand this stuff because this is how we face death. This is how we face real difficulties. That's how, this is often, these promises sometimes come in persecution situations. Jesus was talking about that and actually Hebrews has probably got that background. And you say, Lord, I love you. I hang on to you. Keep me strong, Lord. Keep me in your love as I believe I am. You began a good work in me. Bring it to completion. You are faithful in what you promised. You said you'll strengthen me when I'm weak and this sort of thing. The warnings of scripture are signposts for the marathon runner, the Christian marathon runner. They help us to maintain the race and to keep going, focused on Jesus and the promises of God. They help us to not drop out of the race. That's what the warnings do. You see, faith and assurance are not just fixed entities. There are ups and downs in our lives. The Hebrews 11 examples give us real encouragement. As I said earlier, and it's worth repeating it, it's not merely about moral performance. Did these people get everything right? They didn't. There are real moral failures, real valleys in the lives of Abraham and Noah and David. But the dominant life, note in their life, and particularly you can see it in the big characters we know well, Moses and Abraham and, and, and David, the dominant note is that they believed and trusted God. They trusted his promises and they always came back to him even when they failed and collapsed in their own ability. Faith, rather than faithlessness, was the characteristic of their life. They were faithful to God and his promises. And in fact, they grew in faith. Abraham grows in faith. He's a much more man of faith when he's prepared to sacrifice Isaac than when he's struggling with whether he's even going to have Isaac and produces the awful mistake of Ishmael. But So he actually grows in faith. Saving faith is like Abraham's faith. It ultimately keeps pressing on with God and trusting God and pushes through to the end. It is the dominant life-shaping force in the life of a believer. Our Christian faith must be the thing that shapes our life. It must be the thing that affects us fundamentally when we face the big stuff in life, when we face death, when we face sickness, when we face big decisions. Ultimately, our faith in Jesus is what will take us through. We have an anchor, and that will affect us. And the warnings challenge us. You cannot give up. I don't care how bad it is. There is no alternative. The only alternative is a chasm of hopeless destruction. That is the only alternative. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. And that's really what the warnings are doing. Now, we're all too aware of our shortness and weaknesses and shortcomings. And we despair sometimes that, that, that you know, we're going to complete it. But we mustn't focus on our abilities, but God's abilities. The way to persevere is not basing your assurance on your efforts, willpower, or as I said, your track record. Well, I've run well for 15 miles, I should be all right for the next, for the next 11. That's not how you do it. You keep trusting in Jesus. It's all about him. Everything depends on him. 
Your trust is in him. Your strength is in him. His spirit is what keeps you going. The assurance comes from fixing your eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. That's what helps you persevere. These things, assurance and perseverance, like warnings and promises, they work together. They're not antagonistic to one another. Our assurance causes us to persevere. Our perseverance strengthens our assurance. That's how it works in Scripture. But we're still, and I'm going to anticipate a question. We're going to have questions in a few minutes if you want to ask some. But there's a question. Is a lapsed Christian brother or sister lost or saved? I've seen people lapse. I've seen people go completely away. I don't know where they are today. People I could think of by name. And we want to ask those questions. Is a lapsed Christian brother or sister lost or saved? Now, here's the answer. Basically, it's not our role to say. I believe that the way we often pose that question is probably unbiblical. It restricts salvation entirely to the past, which, as I've tried to show you, is not how the Bible seems to deal with that, with that subject of salvation. Christians can take backward steps. They can get hindered. They can get trapped. They can stumble. When that happens, our task in such a situation is not to utter a declaration of the final destiny of such people. We simply must do what Scripture does, bring an admonition, warn them they are on a dangerous, destructive path and we can offer them no concrete hope that they're saved. If you're going to turn your back on Jesus, I've got no assurance for you that you're okay because you made a decision ten years ago. If you repent and turn you will be spared from God's wrath. The admonition is, now get back on the race. Get running. Let's look at James, which really sums this up. Last two verses of James. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The challenge to people needs to be there. I can't offer you anything if you're not in the race. You've got to get back up running in the race. You've got to follow Jesus and get your eyes on Jesus. Get back up. Get your eyes on Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness. Clean you down again. Put your faith in him. And he will get hold of you again. Or it will seem like, you know, whatever word you want to use. Get back up. Continue running. This is the only way to win the prize. I don't want to use that last phrase, he'll get hold of you again, because that's, I don't think, a biblical thing. If you are their real Christians, God's got hold of them all the way through. But you don't know where a person is. And you can't say, and we shouldn't say, pat them on the head and say, it's okay. You say, I can't guarantee anything if you're not running in the race. If you want to win the prize, you've got to keep going. God has called you to run with Jesus to the end and you must follow through on that. So, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's the sort of now context of scriptural uh, exhortations about that. Which actually leaves us challenged, I think. Because sometimes we have, I have, I think, offered too much consolation to people who are playing about and I don't think that's wise and sometimes we have allowed our delight in God's promises to make us dial down on his warnings but actually they both are necessary together it would be like saying to your person on your cliff top 
That's all right. Walk where you like. Go on. Yeah, you can play ball right on the edge of the cliff. It'll be all right in the end. No, it won't. You can't do that. You can't jump over that cliff. You won't get back up it again. And I think, I think that is the weight of scripture on these things. And with that, I will conclude and allow you to ask me questions for five or ten minutes if you want to. There probably will be some questions, but you might need a moment or two to just think of them.